Sometimes I wonder if we really want Jesus to return. Like, do we really want that? Oh, when times are hard or we're suffering, sure, I think we really do want him to come back at those times. But many other times, we're not so sure. I mean, if he's not number one in our lives, why would we want Jesus to come and shake things up? Or if, he, if we want things of this world more than we want him, then, of course, we're going to have mixed feelings. Like, what will his return mean for our stuff, our wealth, our positions, our status, our friends? Or maybe we hope that he'll hold off until we're more ready for him to return. Right, more accomplished in whatever area of life, or more active in our faith. We feel the need to experience certain things or improve things before he arrives. Maybe we do indeed want relief or healing or justice or peace. But do we want Jesus? Do we even realize what his return will mean? What it will entail? I think our passage today in Revelation chapter 14 will really open our eyes to what's coming, which should possibly alarm us or provoke changes in our lifestyles, but this should much more so excite us and make us truly long for Christ's return. So that's my hope today to stir our longings for Christ and his return, and to refocus us on things that matter most in light of it. So, let's go ahead and open up now to Revelation 14. You can do that in your Bibles if you haven't already, or on your phones, you'll find Revelation 14. In recent chapters, we've seen the devil and his beast friends warring against God and his people. And in chapter 13, it even looked like the bad guys are allowed to win temporarily. But if you were with us last week, we saw the tables turn in verse 1 of chapter 14. Look at it. It says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. This is a picture of the Lamb going to war and achieving victory, standing on Mount Zion. But significantly, the Lamb's not standing alone. He's brought his people with him. The Lamb... Jesus is essentially standing at the head of his army. And we talked about the 144,000 back when we were in chapter 7. This is their second appearance in the book. Without rehashing all the details, the identity of this group of people is greatly debated. Some say it's only Messianic Jews, some say it's end times believers, and others say 144,000 is a symbolic number that represents all God's people of all time. For several reasons, I hold that view, that this symbolizes all believers, but even if you take a different view, I think that what I say today will be true regardless. 
The main thing to not miss here is the Lamb is standing in victory with his people. Another thing to not miss is their very, the very distinctive feature of their appearance. Did you see that? It says, these 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, this, of course, stands in direct contrast with the mark of the beast in chapter 13. God has claimed and marked his own. And if you follow Jesus, that includes you. I believe that I will stand in this crowd on Mount Zion one day. Will you? I believe I already spiritually bear the name of Christ inside of me. But one day, our identification with him will be unmistakable. I think that's one reason God's name is emblazoned across people's foreheads here. I think of the, the party game that most of us have played at some point or other, where you have the name of some famous person or character on your forehead. Right? And by asking questions of others around you, you're trying to guess who is on your card. Now you, you hold it on your forehead for everyone else to see, not yourself. And so something on your forehead isn't as much for your own benefit as it is to display something to others. And in this case, our mark will display, whether literally or figuratively, I'm with him. That's what it's going to display. But how encouraging is the scene described here? And coming right on the heels of the dire descriptions of the devil and the ongoing war against believers, this shows up. It's like, don't get discouraged. Don't despair. The Lamb is the final victor. Also, the application for us isn't work harder for Jesus or shape up or ship out. No, that the main imperative command in these verses is behold. Look. Like, there's nothing we can do to either cause or hinder this scene. Like, look, it's happening. This is coming. Revelation wants to lift our eyes and encourage us with this truth. To behold, Christ is coming in victory with his redeemed. Behold, like see this in your mind's eye. Christ is coming in victory to reign with his redeemed people at his side. If you don't grasp the excitement of this scene yet, Listen to heaven's reaction. Verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So the sound that John hears, it says, is a, a chorus of voices that simultaneously sounds like a deafening waterfall 
crashing thunder, and melodious harps at the same time. You think he's having difficulty finding ways to describe what he's hearing? Maybe think of the, the roar of a crowd at a big concert, and the band or the orchestra is resounding, except if the sound was multiplied by a thousand in volume and beauty. Heaven just erupting in praise. Heaven is singing, it says, a new song, and a song composed exclusively for God's people to sing. It says, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Other translations say those who were purchased or bought get to sing this song. Hinting at the blood of Christ, of course, which purchases our redemption and makes this scene possible in the first place. In verses 4 and 5, though, the picture starts sounding rather strange to our ears. Referring to the 144,000, look what it says. It says, It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. And we go, hold the phone. <laughs> Is that a description of all God's people? Because if so, that's not me. Or what's with the virgins? Like, do you have to be a virgin to be redeemed? What about all God's people who are married? Or those who have been forgiven of past sexual sin? They still defiled? Or is this a crowd of only men being undefiled by women? Speaking of, that sounds a bit sexist. Right? Like, as if women do the defiling and not the men. And who has honestly never lied? How can anyone be this blameless? Lots of questions. One scholar calls this John's most puzzling sentence in Revelation. <laughs> but given the genre, the symbolism, the biblical imagery being used here, it becomes easier to understand. See, throughout Scripture, sexual intimacy is used as an analogy for God's relationship to people and vice versa. For one example of many, in Jeremiah 2, God calls his people his bride and his lover, but then speaks of them defiling themselves by chasing after other gods, like it's adultery. Few verses down from this in Revelation 14, God's enemies make all nations drink the wine of the passion of sexual immorality, it says. Now, that's not to say that sexual sin is the only sin or the worst sin, but it's a fitting metaphor for all sin, as it's a betrayal of God's love for us. God's people, on the other hand, are metaphorically virgins, undefiled and blameless, refusing the world's enticements and saving themselves for their bridegroom. 
Annie Aiken concludes, This without question is symbolic of their fidelity and allegiance to the Lamb. They are spiritually faithful to their God in a world awash in idolatry and immorality. Also, this image doesn't exclude women any more than calling the church the bride of Christ excludes men. Like they're metaphors. And it's definitely not saying anything against women. Women just weren't usually soldiers in that day. And remember, this is the picture of Christ's army with him. I love that line in the middle, though, about Jesus' people following him wherever he goes. If you think if Mary had a little lamb, and that, that lamb then builds an army, and everywhere that Jesus goes, his lambs are sure to go. What a beautiful image this is of, of wanting to and getting to always stay near Jesus. <laughs> We'll never need to leave his presence. We'll always go where he goes. We'll always follow his lead. We'll always participate in what he's doing. I wonder if we're even doing that now. Are we finding ourselves in, in places in life because we follow the lamb there? In certain locations, in jobs, in relationships because we follow the lamb. As for the idea of God's people being blameless, remember that this is post-redemption. They are his already redeemed people. Right? Titus 2 tells us that we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Like We may not be blameless yet, but we are on the way there because Jesus died to both redeem us and purify us for his cause. Revelation 14 really describes the coming result, the fulfillment of what we read there in Titus 2. This is coming, as Ephesians 1 also says. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. So, can anyone be, actually be this blameless? Not on our own. Not yet. But because of the redemption we have in Christ, there's no doubt we will be one day. As I ponder the question, do I really want Jesus to return? One thing that I keep coming back to and I ask myself is, don't I long to, to be totally free from sin? Hey, I'm already totally forgiven, but sin still haunts my every step and every day. I can't wait to be blameless, cleansed from every last lust and lie. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. Full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Behold, Christ is coming in victory with his redeemed. 
They should really buoy us in turbulent waters. No matter what hardships you're facing now, take heart from this truth. As David Platt says, it is and it will be costly to follow Christ in this world. But don't compromise. Even if it means you're being slain, hold fast to your faith. Even if it means you lose your job and all your money, hold fast to your faith. Even if it means ridicule and oppression and isolation or imprisonment or death, follow the Lamb. And one day you will stand with him. You will sing with him and you will be satisfied completely in him. So we continue on in chapter 14. John sees a sequence of flying angels with messages. And the common thread of their messages is God's judgment. That might sound negative to you. But the application for people is surprisingly not. It's this. To glorify, Christ is coming in wrath to judge. That's the point of this passage, as we're going to see. Glorify or worship God, for Christ is coming in wrath to judge. If you didn't know, God's judgment is directly related to God's gospel or good news. It may may seem incongruous, but it's true. Look at the first angel's message in verse 6. It says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now the gospel, he says, is an eternal gospel. And the gospel is eternal in that it is rooted in eternity and God's eternal nature and will. Matthew 24, 14, Jesus said, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Here, that's fulfilled. But Is this angel's message actually the gospel? He doesn't even say anything about Jesus. Well, it can be safely assumed that this is the tail end of his proclamation. This is the therefore, the last line of the gospel, our response to what God has done in Christ. One scholar says that fear God and give him glory are basically code words for repentance and conversion. God is offering salvation through Jesus, therefore. But still, how is what the angel proclaims good news? He said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. I like how Daryl Johnson answers this question. He says, this is good news? Sure it is. 
For if we were created by the creator of all things, if we were created by the creator for relationship with the creator, then we will not be who we were created to be until we fear God, until we give God glory, until we worship God. You might say, well, what about the hour of judgment part? How is that good news? And I'd say, it might not be for you if you're still living in rejection of the Lord. But it's going to be awesome news for the universe. God's holy judgment means total justice, the righting of all wrongs, the eradication of all evil. Those are good things. And... This angel is giving a wicked world one more merciful chance to repent. It's another opportunity. So praise the Lord. Glorify God for his justice and his mercy. Recognize who he is and worship him. Today you may need to hear that this gospel is being proclaimed to you, offered to you, that you in your sin are rightfully destined for God's judgment, but that God in his love made a way to save you from that by sending Jesus to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death we deserved, and once Jesus rose from the dead, offering new and eternal life to us. See, when we come clean about this, God washes us clean forever in Christ's blood. This is incredible news because it's not what we deserve at all. And yet, it's a totally free offer for us to receive. But don't delay because there's an expiry date on this offer. It's like the hour of judgment has come. That hour of judgment is coming. The rest of us should really join the angel in proclaiming the good news to anyone who will listen. We all desperately need this message, especially in light of what comes after this. Look at verse 8. It says, And another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. We're going to see a lot more about this Babylon when we come to chapters 17 and 18. But just for today, Babylon had been an empire in history that was notoriously opposed to God's ways and God's people. By John's day, Babylon had essentially become synonymous with rebellion against God. Which... In in Revelation, then, it appears to stand for the world's political, economic, or religious systems which are corrupted by sin and opposed to all that is of God. That's what Babylon means here. But bad news for Babylon was good news for the kingdom of God. It says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Babylon was destined to fall because God's kingdom was destined to reign. But but we see here the world systems are, are far more fragile than we think. And yet, some of us may even pour our lives into finding success 
or status in Babylon? Why should we be driven or passionate about that which is fallen? As John says elsewhere, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The third angel's message returns us to the imagery of chapter 13 that we saw last week. Verse 9, and another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. In the short term, remember back in chapter 13, it looks as though those who get the mark of the beast are the winners. They are the valued parts of society. They get to buy and sell. They're profitable, successful. But that's not the whole picture. Revelation is revealing things to us that they are actually on a highway to hell. A real highway to hell. The Old Testament often pictures God's wrath as a cup of wine that the wicked get that gets the wicked drunk. Now, you may have never imagined God as a bartender before. That's basically the idea. The wicked get inebriated and they fall down to the ground to rise no more, as Jeremiah twenty five puts it. Here, the picture gets even stronger as God's wrath is poured out, it says, full strength. In other words, the wine is no longer diluted or watered down. There's no chance that the wicked are going to be able to hold their liquor. But we may recoil at these verses, thinking that God goes too far here. Seems like it may seem like too much. How is God pouring out his wrath and, and people says being tormented? How is that good? How is that just? I don't have time today to give you a thorough defense of eternal punishment or hell. I would commend to you some works by Joshua Ryan Butler. Francis Chan, and others. So if you want help navigating these waters, let me know. We'll talk. I'd love to help you to figure this out together. A couple things to recognize here quickly, though. Okay, those who worship the beast have committed their lives to be anti-God. Why would we expect God to just let that all go? No one is entitled to his mercy. But we assume, we expect that. We also tend to underestimate both the severity of sin and the holiness of God. And if we saw the whole picture, if we could see the way God sees, we would know that there's not an ounce of judgment that's undeserved. 
Tim Keller compares the doctrine of hell to smelling salts. You know the, the horrid smelling salt you wave on your nose to wake you up, right? Keller says that hell is like that, and it unveils the seriousness and danger of living life for yourself. That if we live lives for ourselves instead of for God, hell is the natural, inevitable end. Finally, remember that John is speaking to a church here that was fiercely persecuted. These words are meant to encourage them that their abusers will not go unpunished. Vengeance is the Lord's, and he will repay. I find J.I. Packer's words helpful here. It says, God's wrath is something which men choose for themselves. Before hell is an experience inflicted by God, it is a state for which man himself opts by retreating from the light which God shines in his heart to lead him to himself. The unbeliever has preferred to be by himself, without God, defying God, having God against him, and he shall have his preference. Nobody stands under the wrath of God, save those who have chosen to do so. God's readiness to respect human choice to this extent may appear disconcerting and even terrifying. But it is plain that his attitude here is supremely just and pulls apart from the wanton and irresponsible inflicting of pain, which is what we mean by cruelty. The bottom line here, you are not just a person who will live and die and cease to exist. There are real consequences for your choices, actions, and beliefs now that play out forever. But at the same time, glorify God. Praise God that he has given you the choice right here and right now. Praise God for his grace and his mercy. Praise God for his righteous justice, for his patience that this has not come yet. Glorify God with your life because as creator and as savior, he is worthy of it all. And glorify God now because Jesus is coming back soon. And it's better to bow now than then. Again, What is bad news for evil is actually great news for those on God's side. This passage gives us hope that any suffering we face now is limited. It's temporary, which is why John immediately sounds this note again. Look at verse 12. It says, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. This gives us another key takeaway today. This one's more uplifting, right? Endure, Christ is coming in blessing to reward. Endure whatever you're facing now, for Christ is coming back in blessing to reward. You probably got the picture by now that Revelation wants to instill endurance in us. Because life following a crucified Savior can be hard. Things need to be endured. 
in the context of the dragons and the beasts war on believers, opposition can clearly get intense. But John is saying there is an end coming, so hold on until then. Now you all know firsthand lately how hard it is to put up with things, even minor inconveniences, when we don't know when they will end. Like COVID restrictions, right? Lockdowns, isolation, masks, etc. They're more difficult to tolerate when there's no end in sight. But if I were to tell you that this will all end in a week or a month from now, it won't. But (laughs) if it would, you'd probably go, well, I can handle that. I can put up with that. Again, John is telling people, there is an end coming. You don't have to endure forever. Even if some would have to endure to the point of death. Look again. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Now this would have been especially comforting to those who would lose their lives as martyrs. But it really should be encouraging to anyone who is dying in the Lord. Psalm 116 says, it says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And here it says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed. And this is not what most people in our world would say. It is extremely countercultural. And most would say, cursed is anyone who dies. Obviously. And you lose everything. Can't take anything with you. Death is terrifying, unknown, painful. You want to avoid it at all costs. But God's word is clear. Death for the believer actually means unimaginable blessing. Not because death itself is good, but because death has been transformed by Christ. God has prepared eternity to be glorious for his people. Here it talks about them resting from labors, being rewarded for deeds we've done for the Lord. Now some of you are feeling really, really worn down by life right now. That's when rest sounds really nice. Some of us will never be recognized on earth for what we do. But in glory we will be. And in case we think John is just being imaginative, perhaps delusional in his optimism here, God's Holy Spirit himself attests to this. You see that? He says, yes, indeed. Believe him? Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Keep these words in mind next time a beloved fellow believer approaches death. Could be right around the corner. Or even as you approach death. Don't dread it. Of course it's hard for those left behind. 
But we can endure even through death because Jesus is on the other side. He's gone before and we follow him wherever he goes. This chapter ends with a pair of harvests representing what will happen at the end of history. At first glance, it might seem like a a grim spectacle brought about by a grim reaper. However, the reaper we'll see isn't grim. He's glorious, and he's good. See, the one leading the way in the harvest of the earth is Christ himself. Look at verse 14. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. The big big idea that I think we'll see from these final verses is to, again, to behold Christ, to picture this. Behold, Christ is coming in glory to reap. So behold, look, Christ will come again in glory to reap the harvest of the earth. Verse 14, we just read, clearly echoes Daniel's son of man who comes on the clouds of heaven. And we believe this to be Jesus, of course. And he appeared to John in similar ways back in Revelation 1. Here, he is gloriously enthroned on a cloud, crowned as king, but the sickle is new. As I looked and behold, a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. A harvest is a pretty familiar biblical image for the end of the world. Just as a harvest marks the end of a farmer's annual cycle of sowing, growing, and reaping, it's like people have been sown and grown on the earth throughout history, and we are awaiting a harvest, which will eventually come. Jesus often spoke about this harvest that was coming, especially in his parables. In Matthew 13. Here in Revelation 14, obviously in symbolic language, because no one is literally getting sliced off at the knees by a sickle, the harvest of the earth finally comes. It says in verse 15, And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. The angel's like, Lord, go ahead. It's harvest time. Put in your sickle. Reap. For the hour to reap has come. The harvest of the earth is fully ripe. That means that this will come at exactly the right time, neither too early nor too late. It's fully ripe. Now those verses we just read there, verses 14 to 16, describe what scholars call the grain harvest. Okay? Then, verses 17 to 20 describe a second harvest, labeled the grape harvest, where the earth is like a grapevine, which is harvested for wine. Look at these. It says, Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. 
So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Whew. As a 20th century kid, I'm not sure I would even know what a wine press is if it weren't for I Love Lucy. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about by that. Others of you are like, man, dude, you're old. <laughs> this image of a wine press is quite graphic. Don Carson explains wine presses were stone vats into which one threw ripe grapes. The servant girls would then kick off their sandals, pull up their skirts, and trample down the grapes. At the bottom of the vats were little holes with channels under them, and the grape juice would get squeezed out of the grapes to run off to be collected in bottles. In this adaptation of such imagery, people are being thrown into this winepress of God's wrath. Now that sounds like a great verse to Instagram, doesn't it? Now, the big question in these verses is what these two harvests actually represent. Like slicing sickles, reapers, a river of blood, certainly sounds like a picture of judgment. That may be, but we don't actually know that for sure. There are three main theories, and I'm actually going to give you all three today and let you decide. First, because I personally can't decide for sure which interpretation to choose. And second, because we believe all three options actually are going to happen anyway. So I'm not worried about which one you will find most likely. Because we're not positive which option this image is specifically pointing to. Okay? Option one. Option one says both harvest, the grain harvest and the grape harvest, represent God's judgment. That this is God bringing an end to all evil, judging the wicked, meeting out punishment. After all, these images seem to be drawn directly from Joel 3.13, which is a prophecy that clearly speaks about judgment. And in this case, we should take this passage as a dire warning to the unrepentant. Jesus is coming, and it won't be pretty for those who refuse to follow him. Option two says that the grape harvest refers to the wicked, but that the grain harvest is about the righteous. The Bible usually talks about the coming harvest as a two-sided event, right? Such as in the parable of Matthew 13, where the wheat and the weeds are harvested together. But the weeds are burned, and the good wheat is gathered into the barn. During his ministry, Jesus also calls the harvest of souls that is coming plentiful, ripe for harvest, and a crop for eternal life. So there's clearly a good harvest as well. A harvest for eternal life. And here in Revelation 14, there's no mention in the first part of, of threshing, trampling, winnowing, or burning the grain. So, in this interpretation, there's still a warning, but there's also meant to, the, the harvest of the wheat is meant to encourage us to endure until the end. Much like we're encouraged in James 5. 
Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. But then option three, I found to be the most fascinating of all. Whether or not it's most likely, I'll leave it to you. But this option says that both harvests refer to salvation. See, the phrase for the vine of the earth in verse 18 is used everywhere else in the Bible to refer to Israel until Jesus adopts it for himself, claiming, I am the true vine in John 15. So, Daryl Johnson explains, John's first readers would have heard the vine of the earth and thought of Israel. Jesus, the true Israelite, and then of Jesus' disciples who live in the vine. Gather the grapes from the vine of the earth. But if this is the case, what's with all the blood? Well, notice something. Where is the winepress located? Verse 20 says, And the winepress was trodden outside the city. Outside the city. Johnson continues this way. It says, that is where Jesus was crucified. On Calvary, just outside the city. John's readers would have remembered Jesus' parables about the workers in the vineyard who killed the son of the owner of the vineyard outside the city. They would have remembered Hebrews 13. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Outside is the place of salvation. Outside is where salvation happened and is experienced. I follow, therefore, those who argue that the winepress outside the city is the cross. That is where the wrath of God against sin is expressed. I think, therefore, that the blood that flows from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia is the blood of Jesus, the vine of the earth. Jesus swings his sickle and gathers in those who have been saved by his blood. And there is blood enough for all who repent. That is what the most gruesome, gory verse in Revelation is declaring. Blood enough. It goes on to explain how 1,600 can be a symbolic number that represents many people. And so blood flowing over that distance is saying many will be covered by Christ's blood. Intriguing, eh? This would certainly be the most appealing interpretation. Blood enough for all. But regardless of which one you find most convincing, each of these truths is still true. And Christ's final judgment on earth will be devastating for those opposed to him. There is a reaping of both the redeemed and the reprobate coming one day. And we believe that the only rescue from the wrath of God is letting Jesus take it for us. Getting under his blood. And so I believe and I pass on to you, behold, Christ is coming in glory to reap He will gather the harvest into himself and all will answer to him.
Are you ready for that day? If not, what is preventing or hindering you? Run to Christ. He's your only hope. And if you have Christ, you're prepared. So rejoice in your salvation in him. Then go and try to bring as many souls with you as you can. The harvest is ripe. Christ is coming in victory and wrath and blessing and glory. I hope that this wakes you up if need be. I hope this enlivens your mission. I hope this excites your soul. And I hope you see how the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of this coming glory and grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, open our eyes. Help us see Christ before us now, before us each day. and Help that change us. And may many souls be brought to you, God. We pray that. We know how desperately we need you. May we all run to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.